Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. You're going to notice that we've had a couple of episodes now without Jenny, but don't worry. She's going to be coming back. We're just giving her a little break as she adjusts to her new job as an attending over at St. Luke's Roosevelt, but we will have her back on the podcast very soon. I know you guys don't want to just hear me, so don't worry about it. We will bring that back. Now, what are we going to talk about today? Last week on the podcast, we used a recent publication to launch a discussion on angioedema, and this week we're going to do something very similar. We discussed in our conference a recent JAMA publication on the benefit of intubation early in in-hospital cardiac arrest, and I think we can use this as a jumping point to discuss some pieces of cardiac arrest management. The article in question, the one that we reviewed, was by Anderson et al., Association Between Tracheal Intubation During Adult In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest and Survival. It was published in JAMA 2017, and Salim Rezai did a great review of this article on Rebel EM. We'll drop a link to that post so you can take a deep dive into the article. Now, the old paradigm for cardiac arrest management was to focus on the ABCs. That meant the airway had primacy, and one of the first things that was done in cardiac arrest management was to place an advanced airway. This is how I operated when I was a resident, and what often happened was prolonged compression pauses to maximize the ability of the airway provider to deliver an endotracheal tube. Over the last 10 years, though, we've learned that these pauses, while beneficial to airway placement, are detrimental to survival with good outcomes. There's no point in oxygenation if you're not circulating blood to the brain. The JAMA article in question echoes this. The authors here performed a retrospective analysis of a multi-center, prospectively collected data from the Get With The Guidelines registry. The primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge, and they also looked at survival with a good neurologic outcome, as well as ROSC. They had 108,000 in-hospital cardiac arrest patients that were propensity-matched and time to intubation was stratified. Overall, they found a lower rate of survival in the group that was intubated and a lower rate of good functional neurologic outcomes as well. While the study has some limitations, it makes a clear argument against the placement of an advanced airway early in the management of in-hospital cardiac arrest. If not intubation, how should we support airway and breathing in these patients? BVM is probably just fine as long as you get a good mask seal, and if you want something more, drop an LMA. What we don't get from this study or others that are out there is why. Why does intubation decrease survival? This is probably multifaceted, but includes, amongst other things, pauses and compressions, errant placement of the tube into the esophagus, and cognitive load, i.e. paying attention to the airway instead of looking for reversible causes and paying attention to things that we know matter. It's important to note that this study was an in-hospital cardiac arrest, and in the ED, we're mostly dealing with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. There are multiple studies showing that pre-hospital intubation isn't beneficial in outcomes as well, and I think that with all of this data together, it really questions the benefit of early intubation. Let's move from the article to some other important pieces of cardiac arrest care. Our focus has shifted from ABC to CAB. Circulation has supplanted airway as the primary thing we must focus on. This means high-quality compressions, fast and deep. Compressions provide perfusion to the end organs, mostly the heart and the brain. What's the point of getting the heart back if the brain's dead? We've got to make sure to ensure perfusion throughout the arrest phase to the brain tissue. Of central importance is the fact that perfusion isn't an on-off phenomena. When you stop compressions, even for just a few seconds, perfusion drops dramatically. And after you start compressions again, it takes time for perfusion to reach an adequate level. 
As a result of this, pauses must be minimized as much as possible. The AHA recommends about 100 to 120 compressions a minute with 2 to 2.5 centimeters of compression depth. Although mechanical CPR devices provide an unrelenting constancy of quality compressions, they haven't been shown to improve outcomes. There's probably a combination of issues as to the why here, including things like time loss while attaching the device. There are some systems where mechanical CPR is commonly used, and there may be clear advantages in specific places where there are less providers to supply manual compressions, pre-hospital where standing in an ambulance while it's driving isn't exactly the safest thing, and then intra-arrest, so to provide compressions that are constant during procedures like cardiac catheterization or ECMO. The other vital piece of restoring circulation is putting the patient back into a perfusing rhythm, i.e. defibrillation. Early, appropriate defibrillation must be sought whenever possible. This is why there are AEDs in the community and why we put so much stress on rhythm analysis and shock delivery. Most of these patients are going to have pads in place in the anterior and lateral positions because that can be done while compressions are ongoing, as opposed to the anterior-posterior, which requires you to hold compressions. We've got a video on the Coriam site on proper pad positioning, and you should check that out because while it seems like a simple thing, it's often done incorrectly. The most common thing I see is that that lateral pad is placed far too south. It's placed too distal. It's not over the heart or over the apex where it's supposed to lie. Pad placement is critical because successful defibrillation requires 90 to 95% of the myocardium be depolarized. If the pads aren't positioned correctly, the vectors won't run across the heart and you won't reach that number. While we don't have actual data, this may be a big part of why defibrillations are unsuccessful. Compressions and defibrillation are intimately linked. Good perfusion of the coronary vessels improves the chance that you have some rhythm to shock and that you get a return to normal sinus rhythm. Maintaining good perfusion to the brain increases the chance of a good neurologic outcome if you shock the patient out. This stresses the importance of good compressions and rapid defibrillation once again. Really, these are the only things that we know for sure improve outcomes. And let's move from tactics to logistics. How do we deliver the best arrest care? Much of this is opinion gleaned from my experience as well as from others who have far more expertise in the area than I do. There are lots of nuances and advanced approaches, but I just want to focus on some of the basic issues. The first thing is preparation. When you get a call that an arrest is coming in, gather your team, clearly assign roles, and walk everyone through the optimal approach. When assigning tasks, you want to focus on the things that are important, compressions and defibrillation. Let your airway team know that you don't need the patient intubated immediately, but you rather want them to just provide BVM or an LMA. Task a specific person with defibrillation pad application if the patient doesn't already have them in place and review where those pads should go. Line up your compressors and let them know that you expect only one cycle, just two minutes, and then they're going to be switched out to ensure that the compressor isn't tired and that the patient gets high-quality compressions throughout. Make sure you have someone running a clock so that you know when to pause for rhythm checks and when to provide medications. I ask the person to loudly state when there's 30 seconds left in the current cycle for timing of the next interventions. I discuss with the team that we're going to be pre-charging the defibrillator prior to rhythm check. Pre-charging the defibrillator is another place where we can reduce pauses in CPR. Sam Golly did a great discussion on this on Rebel EM, and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. The short of the long here is that 30 seconds prior to the rhythm check, the defibrillator gets charged. When the rhythm check occurs, if there's a shockable rhythm, you're immediately ready to deliver that shock, as opposed to having to wait 5 or 10 seconds for the charging to occur. 
It's beyond the basic ACLS, but I like my patients to have an A-line and I run an ultrasound guided resuscitation. If you're doing those things, make sure you assign someone to A-line placement, ask one of your nurses to set up an A-line kit and assign someone to the ultrasound machine. Once the patient hits the door, things need to move efficiently and seamlessly. The better you prepare, the more likely you're going to get that quiet, efficient resuscitation. Immediately upon transfer to the stretcher, compressions are going to start and pads are going to be placed if they're not already present. The timer needs to start the watch and the resuscitation leader needs to get the story from the paramedics. The airway person needs to start BVM or drop the LMA and provide respirations timed with compressions. During the initial cycle, access should be obtained and an IO is just fine here as it can be quickly placed without much delay. Proximal humerus is the best position for your IO, but proximal tibia is fine if you can't get to the arm. If you're using an A-line, this is the time to get working on that as well. 30 seconds prior to the first rhythm check, the timer should be calling out that there are 30 seconds left, and that's going to be a cue to pre-charge the defibrillator. When the rhythm check is called, if there's a shockable rhythm, the shock is immediately delivered and compressions are immediately restarted. If there's no shockable rhythm, the charge is dumped and compressions are immediately restarted. Addition of ultrasound and A-line guided resuscitation adds a lot more nuances to this, but this is the basics of running a good cardiac arrest resuscitation. Once ROSC is achieved, I would intubate the patient unless they have a return of neurologic function, but intra-arrest, it's more likely to cause issues than to alleviate them. Cardiac arrest resuscitation has a lot of different facets to it. It can be quite complex. We've just touched on the tip of the iceberg here, just some of the basics, but these are the things that you have to nail down before you introduce all of those nuances. Let's hit the take-home points. Intra-arrest intubation does not appear to improve outcomes. For most patients, support with a BVM or possibly an LMA. Instead of securing an advanced airway, focus on the two things that clearly make a difference in outcomes— good compressions, and defibrillation. Good compressions should be fast and hard, and you have to minimize interruptions in compressions to minimize interruptions in perfusion. And finally, don't forget that a great resuscitation requires great preparation. Take whatever time you have to discuss with your team and assign clear roles. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.